0: We are back. And in this hour, we are talking about urban gun violence. Uh, If you live pretty much in any city in this country, you have probably been impacted by violence in your community. I'm happy to have joining me for this conversation, Thomas Apt. He is the author of Bleeding Out, and founding director of the Center for the Study and Practice of Violence Prevention. He's also a professor at the University of Maryland. Also, Dr. Matthew Matthew Velasik is here. He's an associate professor of criminology and criminal justice at the University of Alabama. He's also the co-author of Alt-Right Gangs, A Hazy Shade of White. Thanks to both of you uh, for joining me for this conversation. I know we spend a lot of time uh, in this country, which we should, talking about mass shootings, talking about those horrific shootings that take place at schools and uh, in churches, grocery stores, shopping malls, movie theaters. Theaters. You think of it, you know, we've seen over the last decade or so, you know, these drum beat steady drum beat of mass shootings. But there are other kinds of shootings uh, that happen uh, in this country on a daily basis that uh, oftentimes don't make the big headlines, uh, but can be, you know, are as troubling as those mass shootings. So I'm glad we're having this conversation today. I want to start with you, uh, Professor App, because you say that you have the definitive response to what you call urban violence. I know you worked under the Obama administration. You've done a lot of work on, you know, issues of gun violence. Uh, Tell us what the solution is and how come we don't see cities around this uh, nation employing these uh, solutions?
1: Sure, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I don't know if I would uh, uh, you know, pose the solutions that I talk about and Bleeding Out as the definitive solutions, but there is a very strong body of evidence for these basic principles. And the basic idea is that if you put the right set of strategies together, you don't need big budgets, you don't need new legislation, you can make an immediate impact on saving lives by stopping violence right away. And the strategies that uh, that I talk about in the book are strategies that have three characteristics in common. They're focused, they're balanced, and they're fair. What I mean by focused is they're focused on the highest risk people and places. One thing that folks don't always know is that serious gun violence is quite concentrated in city after city across the United States. It's not everywhere. In fact, it concentrates in micro locations known as hotspots, and among a few, you know, often of just a few hundred individuals uh, who are contributing disproportionately to the problem. So you got to be focused in order to be most successful. The next principle is balance. Can't be all carrots, it can't be all sticks. We need to we need to uh, you know promise supports and services to those who want to make a change and uh, improve their lives and um, and get out of, uh, you know, uh, a life of crime and violence, but we also need to be willing to follow up with uh, sanctions if folks continue to engage in behavior that harms the community. And then finally, fairness. I think that we've, anyone who's lived through the past decade here in the United States knows that there's a crisis of confidence in the American criminal justice system, particularly among poor communities of color. And so anything you do in the name of reducing violence, you need, that needs to be perceived as fair and legitimate by those communities, by those most impacted. So those are the three basic principles of effective violence reduction here in the United States.
0: Well, let's step back, uh, Dr. Velasic in terms of, uh, give us some stats. Help us understand how pervasive uh, gun violence is, and I know you do a lot of work around gangs and gang violence, but I think it would be important for us to have a perspective on, you know, what kind of numbers are we talking about? How many people are killed on average in this country every day by gun violence that's not characterized as mass uh, being a part of a mass shooting?
2: I mean, yeah, I mean, gun violence is uh, pervasive, per- particularly in urban areas, like you mentioned Um I mean, I don't. I can't tell you the numbers specifically of how many impacted a day, but I mean, you look at places like Los Angeles, where I'm most familiar with, and you know, you're still having hundreds of homicides a day um, taking place. And again, when it comes to gangs, um, over 95 percent of gang homicides involve firearms. So you're looking at at least one to two homicides a day in a city like Los Angeles, which is relatively um, I guess on the downward trend or, or you know has things in better in hand if you look at other places like Baltimore um, or Detroit or other places that are struggling, um, those numbers are going to be much higher each day and and do not have the resources to kind of handle um, dealing with those situations.
0: Yeah, do you uh, Dr. Abb, do you, do you have those numbers in your research and work that you do do you look at you know are you tracking? Like what gun violence stats have, you know, look like over, say, the last five or 10 years? And do you have any sense about, you know, increasing violence versus decreasing violence? Where are we on that spectrum?
1: Sure. If you look at homicides, which are the most reliable indicator of of violent crime, um, you know, and you track them over, you know, approximately a 30-year period, uh, the homicide rates in the United States really peaked in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, with the sort of, uh, with the sort of uh, epidemic of uh, crack cocaine and other, and other uh, street drugs and, and things like that. And then there was a steady march for many years, all the way to about 2015 or 2016 or so, where we saw declines all across the country to levels that we never really thought were possible. And then, unfortunately, in 2016, we started seeing homicide rates uh, creep up. And in 2020, we saw the largest single year-over-year increase uh, that we've seen since we captured modern statistics. Now, that happened during the pandemic, and there were probably specific reasons for that. But fortunately, uh, after increases in in 2020 and 2021, now we're seeing homicides starting to ebb. But we haven't gotten back to that lowest point that we were at um, in 2015. So, Do we
0: know what happened in 2016? What was the catalyst? I know the 2020 numbers are reflective of what was going on in the country around the pandemic, but what was happening in the country in 2016?
1: Well, uh, you know uh, obviously there are uh, different people uh, uh, have different opinions, but I think one of the main factors, one of the national factors was again this crisis of confidence, sometimes called the Ferguson effect. And what mm. we see is when you see these highly publicized incidents, of police violence um, in poor communities of color. uh, If they are large enough to capture national attention, they can have an effect, not just in that city, but across cities uh, across the country. And so what we saw is a delegitimizing of law law enforcement in response to this police violence. And that, in addition to uh, maybe some uh, uh, reduced proactive policing, caused violence to spike. And we saw the same thing in the aftermath of the brutal murder of George Floyd, a very large, dramatic spike in homicides immediately after that incident. So, you know, the protesters, uh, you know, are not that far off when they say no justice, no peace. When there is injustice, we see uh, increased rates of violence, not necessarily related to protests, but in the communities where violence typically concentrates.
0: And I know, uh, Professor Vlasic, you've done a lot of work around gang injunctions. And L.A. in particular has been a city that has relied on those gang injunctions. And I know they've come under attack and challenged by some civil rights organizations. And I'm thinking about the uh, police unit in uh, Mississippi that was involved, not Mississippi, in Memphis, I should say, that, uh, you know, was was called out because of the, the brutal beating of, of the Black man in that town that we witnessed earlier this year. I'm just thinking about all these units that are often formed to so-called go after violent criminals. And many times what we learn is that they engage in racial profiling. They engage in other kinds of unconstitutional policing. And we've seen many of them disband. We've seen, you know, lots of corruption associated with them. So, you know, is that the way to really attack gun violence in these cities? I
2: mean, yeah. So the I mean, you kind of see that pattern over time. I mean, obviously, it goes back to the, the days of Rampart um, and the original crash units in LA, and and kind of basically what happens is uh, these units, if they lack accountability um, and are kind of left out there to do their own, um, unfortunately, they kind of turn into gangs themselves, right um, and start kind of focusing on again members of the unit and what their needs are as opposed to what the purpose of the unit was supposed to be. Um, you know since then LA has kind of brought all those units under the guise of each police station. So there's much more uh, hierarchy, you know, a daily uh, observation of what is going on um, and we don't see those patterns that we saw in the uh, in the past, as a result of Rampart but as you see in other places like um the gun task gun trace task force that was in Baltimore um you know the the unit in Memphis um it's time and again if these units don't have uh people watching them making them accountable for their daily actions they just kind of end up um you know becoming perverted and uh, again kind of becoming a gang themselves and uh, causing problems, right? And it's not just the people they directly impact, but obviously the family members of those individuals. And then uh, as Dr. App was saying, you know, you have breakdowns of the larger community um, trusting in the police. And when you have that happen, that's a really pro- big problem because the vast majority of police time uh, is is basically in response to citizens saying, hey, there's a problem here, come check it out. Uh, Police are not generally proactive in their enforcement duties. They're responding to calls. They're responding to what we deem as citizens um, problems. Right. And coming to that aid. And if all of a sudden citizens aren't doing that, then it really leaves police out there to 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 not know what's going on, um, let alone being able to intervene in, in crime.
0: So what is your opinion about the gang injunctions that we saw heavily used in L.A.?
2: Um so again it's it's kind of there's been a lot of limited research on injunctions which is troubling um typically uh if you were to ask like a city attorney you know if do they work they would say well yeah cuz everyone gets upset when we use them um but um it's really been kind of back and forth i mean the idea of the injunction is that it's supposed to break up gangs from hanging out together in public intimidating the community and uh, you know, kind of existing as a, a public entity, and uh, this, the research that I've done looking at this is really kind of a, a mixed bag. So I, I just looked at injunctions in East LA uh, in the Hollenbeck area, and there are seven injunctions in that in that community, and half of them kind of broke up the gang, the, the gangs kind of fell apart, but the other half it made them more uh, connected. You saw more people uh, over time. Uh, hanging out publicly together. And so, again, it's one of those things where we just don't know enough to say you know, unequivocally, like, oh, this is what we need to do. Maybe in some situations, it makes a lot of sense um, if you have a gang that is uh, already very organized and can kind of be directed by the police to do something. But you could have a gang that is not very organized and the result of the injunction kind of starts making them organized because now they have an outside threat to kind of rally against. Uh, you know, in this case, the, the police. And so um, generally, studies have shown that crime goes down in those areas. But the problem is those studies generally look at overall crime or overall violence, and they're not actually looking at the specific gang crimes that are happening, right? So if there's a gang homicide in an injunction area, well, that's fine. But was that in gang that was actually enjoined by the injunction or a neighbor gang or or something else? Um it's hard to measure these things if you're not using the exact metrics to say, oh, yeah, this is actually seeing a reduction in the crime that that gang is uh, taking place in.
0: What's your opinion, uh, Professor App, on gang injunctions? Is that a part of the strategy you think cities should be employed to address urban gun violence? Well, I think
1: I think Professor Velasik uh, knows the evidence better than uh, than I do. And what he's saying is that it's mixed. And so I do think that there are strategies that are more effective at targeting gang and group violence. And the whole point is you got to get specific. Uh, In this country, we like to generalize. We like to talk about violence as a function of all guns, of all gangs or of all drugs. But we got to get specific. What we've got to say is, look, in the in our particular city, we've got a few people who are carrying illegal weapons. We've got a few people who are involved in gang and group conflicts. And we've got a few people who are involved in violent drug conflicts. We don't have to stigmatize entire classes of people or entire communities to make a difference in this area. And that's the problem is, you know, sometimes it's either... Well, you know, we just got to stop and search everybody. Um, so we can catch a few criminals. But in reality, if you do if you have better information and you know who you uh who the worst of the worst in the n- particular neighborhood are, the most the highest risk for being engaged in violence, you can engage them directly and let the rest of the community go about their business.
0: Yeah, I know that oftentimes In this conversation about urban violence, there's always conversations about poverty, education, housing, uh, you know, resources or the lack thereof. And and when we come forward, I want to really talk about what relationship, if any, both of you believe some of those factors play because you often hear folks say, well, what do you expect? You have. You know, population density, you have people like in housing projects living on top of each other, people who don't have access to living wages, they have, you know, low paying jobs, they don't, you know, they have low performing schools, they don't have, uh, you know, grocery stores in their neighborhood, that the neighborhoods are so lacking, and the resources are so lacking that that lack of resources is driving that gun violence. I want to get both of your takes on that. Uh, you know and, and if that is then you know why isn't that a bigger part of this conversation stay with us KBLA Talk 1580 we are back and in this hour we're talking about how do we address and reduce urban gun violence professor thomas app is joining us he's the author of bleeding out and he's the founding director of the center for the study and practice of violence prevention. He's a professor at the University of Maryland. And he formerly worked under President Obama. Also joining us is Dr. Matthew Felicic. He is an associate professor of criminology and criminal justice at the University of Alabama. He too is an author. And he co-authored the book, Outright Gangs, A Hazy Shade of White. Again, thanks to both of you for joining me. I want to read something. Um, this is the op-ed you wrote, uh, Professor App. This is a couple of years ago, but you said this summer I published a book called Bleeding Out that explains how we could reduce gun violence by 50% in, US, in the U.S.'s 40 most violent cities. The plan would take eight years and could save more than 12,000 lives. It would cost about $100 million a year. So question, did any of those 40 most violent cities take you up on your plan and implement it?
1: Well, uh it's a great question and uh it's an interesting one you know the book has <laughs> been uh, the book has been uh, pretty influential in a lot of different corners uh with local governments state governments even the Biden administration but I have to say I was surprised that the sort of plan that I put forward to save lives was not uh was not taken up specifically uh, most cities just sort of, or policymakers sort of picked bits and pieces out of the book and didn't really take the whole plan as a whole. Now, with the new center, the Violence Reduction Center, the Center for the Study and Practice of Violence Reduction, we're finally putting those plans into place. And we've done so in Knoxville, Boston, and now in St. Louis. And so far, it's very early, but so far, the results are good.
0: And the plan, is it the same eight-year plan that you are referencing in this op-ed piece?
1: No, it's, you know, we start we're working with uh, with, uh, you know, the mayors uh, and community members and law enforcement and other and other folks. And we're just getting started. We don't necessarily say we're going to be here for eight years. We're just getting started. And uh, we've been on the ground for a year um, in uh, Knoxville, about six months in Boston. And we're just getting started in St. in St. Louis. But I do think that what you want um, when you just do these do this work is you would, want to uh, decide on a plan that's both evidence and community informed. You want to put that plan in, uh, in place over a matter of months. And then what you're hoping to see is, you know, modest to moderate reductions in homicides year over year. In my book, I believe I said that I believe a 10 percent reduction year over year is is realistic if you use the right policies. And that translates to a 50% reduction over four years. So doing the right thing year over year could really add up.
0: So again, in this op-ed piece, uh, Professor Velasic, Professor App says that conventional wisdom tells us that to address violence, we need to work from the outside in, starting by fixing everything else, culture, poverty, racism, employment, but all of the most rigorous and reliable evidence tells us the opposite that we have to work from the inside out, focusing first and foremost on the highest risk people and places. Do you agree with that uh, approach?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, the majority of people in a community that are engaging in violence um, are are not uh, it's not everyone, right? It's a select few individuals. So obviously targeting those people um, and, uh, you know, persuading them, or um, again, enforcing the laws that exist to get them to stop is um, has been found over time again to be one of the most effective ways of doing it. Um, the one thing That's I'd like to film. add. Go, oh, ahead. go ahead.
0: No, go ahead. Add.
2: Um, so the kind of the stuff I've I, the research I've done looking at gun violence in uh, in Hollenbeck, I've looked at it now for over fifty years, um, going back to the the nineteen seventies and. The one thing that keeps happening is that when you look at the, the areas in Hollenbeck, again, it's not every place that's enduring uh, gang violence, even when you have 30 plus gangs that are um, in that community, uh, where that, gun, that gang violence is taking place. And again, gang violence and gun violence are basically the same exact thing. Um, it's in these neighborhoods um, that are with a lot of economic disadvantage. And that has persisted over this fifty-year period. Now, Hollenbeck has seen lots of different interventions. They've seen injunctions. They've seen Operation Ceasefire. They've seen, you know, the the grid uh, program with the the mayor of LA. And again, all these things over time. And again, there's ebbs and flows. But the places that still have that violence are these disadvantaged communities. And so, I mean, if we really, if we're really talking about dealing with these issues head on. It really comes down to dealing with that economic issues, the the socioeconomic problems that are in those neighborhoods. Uh, if we change that, then we'll see those changes over time because that is the one variable that again remains constant over fifty years um, as driving where these these acts of violence are taking place.
0: Yeah, and I guess as I'm thinking about you know that statement of Professor Velasic, or, or I guess well Professor App in your this op-ed that I'm reading that we need to not focus, you know, all of our efforts on culture, race, uh, and community, but look at, as you said, kind of look at these pockets of people who have been identified. It begs the question, like, if you get those people off the street, what's going to prevent the next group of people from coming up, becoming those people? It's kind of like, you know, the terrorists, right? So we can bomb the terrorists and kill this group of terrorists, perhaps that attacked Israel on October 7th. But what is going to prevent the next generation of terrorists from evolving and, you know, be, being a threat? So, how do we break that cycle if we're not investing in the community, if we're not bringing up the standard of living, if we're not creating jobs, if we're not giving people some hope that there's something that they can do other than become that next? violent person who is committing crimes or committing, you know, using guns to, to uh, you know, violent, committing violent crimes with guns.
1: I think it's a, I think it's a great point. And to a certain extent, I agree with you and I agree with per, Professor Velasik uh, about this. Look, you know, at the root cause, um, you know, violence is caused by structural racism. It's caused by, you know, high levels of inequality, high levels of poverty, lack of opportunity. But those are multi-generational struggles. And the, those very forces that put violence into place are now being actually perpetuated by high levels of violence. So it's not an either or. It's not, oh, you know, we either work on reducing violence right now, or we work on you know addressing social justice issues uh, later. We need a short-term strategy and a long-term strategy, and so it's really got to be a both and, not neither or.
0: I agree with you, but that's assuming that our government and these local governments, you know, uh, can operate in this world, this frame where two things can be true at the same time. And what we seem to, what we see more often than not. Are budgetary decisions being made by city councils and and mayors that reflect the either or that we're talking about? So, typically, like in a city like LA, and Professor uh, Velasic, you can speak to this being in doing work in LA, the budget is disproportionately skewed towards police to have more cops, to have more law enforcement. And the budget for those social programs that are going to address some of those systemic problems often go, uh, you know, or they're shortchanged. And you don't see that same level of economic investment in those programs that can address some of these systemic problems. And you get this disproportionate, you know, police presence in poor neighborhoods, disproportionate, uh, you know, racial profiling Uh, events, which is why we've had the George Floyds and the, you know, the Michael Browns and, and, you know, going all the way back to the Oscar Grant case uh, up north in in California. So I I wish it were true that government could work on both of these things at the same time, but it just doesn't seem to be the reality when we look at most city budgets. Uh, When we come forward, I'd love to get your response to that, uh, Professor Velasik, given that you've done a lot of work in LA and you know the struggle. Over the city budget, uh, particularly around the amount of money—the billions of dollars—that are set aside each year for the police—and weighing that against, uh, you know, how much is set aside in the city's budget for social services programs. When we come forward, KBLA Talk fifteen eighty. You're listening to Ariva
2: Martin in real time on KBLA Talk fifteen eighty eighty eighty.
0: We are talking about urban gun violence and what are the most effective strategies to reduce that violence. Professor Thomas App and Professor Matthew Vlasic are here. I just want to read something uh, else from your op-ed, Professor App. It says, a single homicide can cost anywhere from $10 million to $19 million, about one-third a direct cost to the criminal justice system, to the medical system, lost wages for the victim and the perpetrator. The remaining two thirds are the indirect costs associated with fear and avoidance triggered by homicide, everything from increased insurance premiums to suppress property values and decrease economic activity. We all pay the costs while the impact of urban violence is felt directly by a very small number of people. We are all suffering from it directly. So, uh, Back to you, uh, Professor Velasic, about budgets and in city budgets, including cities like L.A., when a disproportionate amount of that budget goes to police, uh, the police, you know, their their column, you know, the revenue for police, and you see a disproportionate amount going to social services, Are we making a statement there? Are we making a statement that the only solution to gun violence is more police presence?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously the thing when it comes to with uh, city budgets or any, you know, any municipality, you know, everyone has so much uh, wedge of that pie, right? And no one wants to get a smaller wedge. Uh, Everyone's fighting to to maintain the same amount. And uh, when you try to offer other approaches and say, okay, well, we're going to do, we're going to increase social services or we're going to, you know, provide uh, some other type of social support, you know, the money's going to come from somewhere. So everyone's, you know, frantic about wh- who's going to get cut, what's going to get reduced. Um, you know, a lot of obviously the, the defund the police language that came out, it wasn't so much that we're, you know, trying to remove the police, we're just trying to remove the services that police have to do—I mean, again—they're overburdened with having to do so many different things um, that are not what they're trained to do. And so, wouldn't that be better if we were able to have other services that could do those functions for the police, or at least assist them with it? But then it's like, okay, where is that going to come from? Well, it might have to come out of your budget, and obviously, no one wants that to happen. Um, part of these issues, obviously, too, is you know, uh, political aspects. You know, our, our political system operates on a four- to six-year window, um, and when we have things where we have root causes of, of crime being economic uh, disadvantage over decades, and you say, hey, we're going to institute this this plan, and it's going to take eight years, or maybe it'll take 10 years or 20 years, politicians don't, don't want that because they might not be in office when we see those results, Right. Um, and so taking approaches that are more, uh, suppression oriented where the police can say, oh, well, we're, you know, we're going to try for this 5% reduction next year. Just give us, you know, a little bit more money. We'll get some more people out there and you'll see those things. It's a much more appealing, um, strategy for politicians than to say, okay, well, if we start, you know, mentoring youth, providing better schools, maybe in 12 years, when they get to that, that, that prime age where they're going to start having this uptick in criminality, it's not going to happen. They, they don't want to wait that long.
0: Yeah. And also, one of the things that you said, Professor Apt, is that your plan starts with the idea of investing more money in anti-violence programs that have shown evidence of working. And we've seen, again, in cities like L.A. and other cities, those anti-violence programs are some of the first that get cut uh and some sometimes it's because there is this political battle uh between those citizens usually those white more affluent residents who aren't feeling the scourge of gun violence in their neighborhood but maybe want more uh trash collectors or want more parks in their city want more green space and because they're better organized they have you know highly you know paid advocates lawyers lobbyists they can, uh, you know, have more influence over that budget. Uh, I'm thinking about when I I live here in Los Angeles, and I know that some of those anti-gang programs worked. I worked with some of them. I knew a lot of the people that ran them, but they were dismantled, or you know, or the budgets were cut substantially. So how do you reconcile that? Because unfortunately, race does play a huge issue in all these issues, whether we're talking about homelessness or gun violence. In poor communities, and quite frankly, what we see in a lot of cities is the the white affluent residents don't have the will to spend money on problems that they think are those people. So, how how do we deal with that, uh, Professor App?
1: Oh, how do we deal with that? That's an easy <laughs> question. Thomas, just figure, figure out the race problem here.
0: Tonight. I just gave you the biggest question because you're the biggest brain here tonight. So. Well, uh, uh,
1: I'll, I'll do my best. Let me, let me just say this. I think that it's a big mistake uh, to frame these funding questions as either or, as take from the police and give to community programs or take from community programs and give to police. There's a few reasons for that. Number one, you need these uh, community-based anti-violence strategies and the police to be working together. And if they're competing with each other for funding, they're not gonna work together. Number two, there's actually not enough money in, uh, in the policing and criminal justice budget to fund all the things that we wanna do. So you can't just raid law enforcement's budget. I know it looks big, but it's not actually big enough to do all the social justice supports and services that they that we want. And so those are those are two uh two key key reasons. I do believe that we need to be funding more on the community-based side. But there's a big difference between be, uh, between saying, look, we need to find money and raise more money uh uh, you know, perhaps through a special tax to fund these community-based programs, and another thing saying take it from the cops. We need to get back to the good old days with Mayor Vera Ragosa. Back in those days, you know, Chief Beck would go to the city uh city council and would be lobbying for the gang funding and for uh youth development funding uh with Deputy Mayor Guillermo Sfezetis. We need to get back to collaborating and not not giving folks this either or co- uh question.
0: No, I I agree that it shouldn't be either or. I'm not so sure I agree with you that the, cop, the, the police budget needs to be bigger. I think the level of distrust amongst communities of colors is such that, you know, it's going to be hard pressed to find many black social justice activists or lawyers like myself who believe that we should be giving more money to cops. Uh, you know, I, I think most of us believe we should be giving less money because cops should be doing less things. We need to get police out of things like mental health I'm a mental health and disability rights advocate. I don't want to see a police show up at my house when my disabled son is having a crisis uh, because they're not trained to deal with mental health crises. Uh, so I, I guess it's a question of, you know, how do we find that balance? And there are differences in 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 communities and differences in cities uh professor Velasic on how budgets should be driven so you know professor app says there's not enough money in police budgets and you know that you know after George Floyd's murder you know most communities of color were saying you know we still want the police we don't want to get rid of them all altogether but boy do we want a lot less of them uh and we do want to see them involved in a lot less of these things that that should be you know, handled by other uh, trained professionals.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's the 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 biggest crux that we have is um, the, the mental health institutions that we had were all gutted back in the '60s. Um, you know, for for good reasons. Um, but it was one of those things where the promise of all right, well, we're going to build up a a system then to replace that. Um, it just never never took place right because again it goes back to those same things of if we're going to say oh we're going to build a halfway house or a mental health facility in your community all those residents just start going well no i don't i don't want in my community go go build it over there right and so Mm -hmm. you get all this pushback and at, at some point in time when you don't have people advocating for you or your community is not organized enough to um to marshal the the support for these types of places um it just collapses and it and it never went forward and so The police ended up being the ones responsible now for dealing with all these things. And again, like you said, they're not they're not trained to deal with these situations. That's that's not their function um, in society. And so we really need to work on building up those social uh, support areas more so. Um, It just takes a lot of political capital to do so.
0: And just real briefly, uh, we have about uh, 60 seconds left, uh, Professor Uh, After I give you the last word on this, what can be done to build more trust in these communities of color that have pretty much lost, for the most part, most of the trust, to the extent there ever was, you know, trust there in police departments in because of some of the, you know, the high profile cases like George Floyd and Mike Brown and others. You know, do you have any thoughts about how that trust starts to be rebuilt? Um,
1: I do, and it's based on what I've seen work uh, around the country. And the fact of the matter is, is that trust is built up over time. There's no conversation that we can have, you know, no kumbaya moment that's going to